What's good, y'all? Welcome to the John Katz Show, episode number 46. Uh, being joined by a very special guest today. Please welcome Bobby Azarian to the show. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. No doctor before the, the name, by the way. I meant to ask you that. I feel like most of you guys put the doctor on there. Nah, it's not necessary. <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure what that's supposed to mean, you know? I mean, a little too hoity toity for you. Yeah, I'd say so. For those of you tuning in, uh, Mr. Zarian is a cognitive neuroscientist with a PhD from uh, George Mason University, Fairfax, very pretty area. I grew up not far from there. I saw you grew up in Lynchburg, right? Oh, you did some research. Uh oh. <laughs> I watched that intro video to the channel. I was like, oh, yeah, he's pretty close to me. Oh, wow. That's old. Very old amateur. Forgot that's on there. <laughs> oh, it was a, it was a and, nice intro. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And uh, Bobby's also the author of uh, a new book that just came out a couple months ago The Romance of Reality How the Universe Organizes Itself to Create Life, Consciousness, and Cosmic Complexity. It's uh, it's a great read, and it uh, opens up my mind to a lot of things. Excuse me. I love the title, The Romance of Reality. It's like one of my main rants to people is always, isn't, isn't reality just strange enough? You know, because people are so hesitant to get into that supernatural type. I go, like, you don't even have to. I go, the reality, the fact I'm sitting here talking to you on a device, having, like, the, that alone, if you really think about it, is already stranger, but I like, I always say it's weird or strange, but I like the word romance. So I'm stealing that from you. Yeah. It's a mysterious universe. Uh, life and consciousness are mysterious and uh, romantic in that sense. And I think people should be willing to talk about it that way because it is weird. And the technology we're communicating over is literally magic. Um, so I would say that anything that's like outside of your current scientific framework will appear to be magic. But then when science catches up with whatever it is, then you understand how it works, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it any less magic, right? So a garage door opener, uh, we press a button and a door that's like 20 feet away from us mysteriously opens. If Isaac Newton saw that, he would be like, that's fucking magic. <laughs> like, how, how does that happen? It wasn't part of the Newtonian framework and electromagnetism wasn't really understood later and incorporated into our physical framework until James Clerk Maxwell, like centuries later. So um, there's a, a quote by the um, sci-fi writer Arthur C. Clarke that says any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So there are a lot of technologies out there that we haven't discovered. We haven't learned how to harness nature to its full potential. And those things, if we could see into the future, would appear to be magic from our perspective. But it will turn out to just be something, you know, some way we learn how to exploit nature for, to achieve our goals. So, yeah, I, I, I'm really against this kind of like anti- magic anti-mystical campaign that science has created i understand why it exists because science for a long time and maybe you could say still is under under attack from religion from organized religion but i i, I personally don't see any incompatibility between science 
and spirituality. And I think it's a culture war that we need to end by bridging science and, and spirituality. And, and the book kind of tries to do that. Yeah, it's it's the whole idea that if people can't explain it, then they don't even want to think about it. They don't even want to go there. Does science explain it? Or they think science explains it, but it doesn't really. Like you said, if you went back in time with a smartphone or even something far more rudimentary, they would look at you like it's absolute magic. But I guess that's the whole point of the book, which is to say science isn't factoring in to me is the realist, you know, our, our consciousness defines everything, right? It's like without that, there is no experience. Yet all the sciences surrounding life and everything else, they don't even factor that. They don't even go there. They don't want to go there. Yeah, the uh, kind of theories of everything that we hear about in the media, these grand unified theories, um, things like string theory, they're actually not theories of everything because they have absolutely nothing to say about life and consciousness. And we're at a time where scientists and philosophers are starting to understand that consciousness needs to be included in the scientific picture. Luckily, we have neuroscience and cognitive psychology to, to inform us, but we have to really you know, the the old idea is that you could reduce everything to physics and we could just talk about particles. But again, that's that's not what we find when you try to reduce consciousness to the interactions of material components. I mean, that's fine. That's part of the story. But you lose the thing that you're trying to describe, which is experience. So we're starting to incorporate life and consciousness into our physical worldview. And what we're seeing is that the story of nature, the story of the evolution of the universe or cosmic evolution is a story that includes life. And the book argues that life has cosmic significance because it will shape the large scale structure and development of the universe. And it's not something that, you know, we have to be lucky for that to happen. Uh, it's explained that life living systems are complex adaptive systems. Uh, that's kind of a technical term that uh, complexity science uses to describe uh, ordered, organized information processing systems like living organisms. You, you, you have to start talking about new things, higher level phenomena to really understand what's going on in the universe because uh, these complex adaptive systems form a network and uh, you can call that phenomenon just by kind of uh, switching the word around and, and call life adaptive complexity. It's a network of complex, complex adaptive systems. And what adaptive complexity does is it's always learning from the challenges that nature presents it with. So life's been on the earth for roughly 4 billion years. It's never blinked out since it emerged. And even in the face of mass extinctions, the biosphere has grown increasingly diverse and complex and has produced increasingly intelligent species. And the picture that's emerging is saying that this evolutionary process that we're seeing on Earth play out, which leads to technology and which ultimately leads to life leaving the planet, is part of a more fundamental uh, universal evolutionary process such that the development of the universe follows this trajectory where first matter emerges and then life and then consciousness and civilization and culture. And so you can't leave that part out of the physical story. So 
it's not that I'm saying that we need to ditch physics and think about biology and psychology and consciousness and, you know, these, these higher level sciences. Um, but we need to develop a physics of these higher level sciences. And when you try to do that, you have to use theories that were invented in the 20th century, but are really just starting to be applied outside of their domain, like information theory and uh, thermodynamics. So we're starting to understand life in those terms. And we have a whole new language given to us by complexity science, which is kind of a combination of a, a bunch of different sciences like physics, chemistry, biology, neuroscience, psychology, computer science, statistics. So we're getting a new language of organized systems where we talk about things like attractors. So attractors would be like stable states. So you as a system, you exist in a stable state in your environment. As long as you continue to get energy, the things you need to survive, you can say stay stable. If you don't, you'll die. Um, but you're the system that's trying to stay organized in the face of a reality that otherwise kind of falls apart. Um, the same could go for a society. A society is basically a network of organisms, of, of humans in our case, the same way that a human is a network or society of cells. So your brain has 80 billion neurons, your body has something like 100 trillion cells, you're a community of organisms that have come together and form a larger organism, a super organism. You're really a super organism because all of those little cells are independent agents. And um, collectively, we form societies. So we have another super organism at a higher level, a social organism. And so we need to understand the evolution of the universe as involving the evolution of life. And it's really this story that begins before life and uh, life becomes part of that narrative, and it's a story of nature's fundamental units. So we're talking about like particles, subatomic particles come together to form atoms, atoms come together to form molecules, and we have chemistry, molecules come together to form cells, and we have biology, and then uh, multicellular organisms come together to form societies, and we have sociology and economics and all these higher sciences. So to really understand the story of nature, we have to understand the story of parts coming together to make larger wholes. And this process is, it's, it's kind of mind blowing because when, when you look at the earth as an entire system, you see that humans are forming something like a global brain on the earth because humans are exchanging information through our technology, through our devices, in very much the same way that neurons and brains um, communicate through electrical signals. And so the story of the evolution of the universe basically involves biospheres that start out in this early, like embryonic stage where you just have the emergence of life with like a single cell. And then life grows and evolves and adapts and eventually spreads to, to cover the entire earth. And um, that's why Earth looks very different from planets that don't harbor life, like from space. And uh, if you buy this idea that it's this process that involves life, this the, the, the cosmic evolution process, then uh, built into that process would be that life spreads to other planets. And that would be the biosphere as a whole entity uh, self-replicating.
So if we put life on Mars, we terraform Mars, we make it an atmosphere that is friendly for life, then it would basically be from a from a cosmic perspective that the biosphere was itself a superorganism that is then starting to self-replicate. And every planet would be would have a biosphere that's slightly different because there's different conditions. So it would be making copies of itself with a variation. And then you can have natural selection, which Darwin described, acting on this higher level of self-replicating biospheres. Throughout throughout the universe. Well, and think about another species that's intelligent and a million years, a billion years beyond us. You know, the idea when people say there's not life out there it's i I go are you kidding yeah i think sentiments changing to where um you know before the majority of scientists would probably say that there wasn't life out there at least in the 20th century that got really popular because we didn't understand the mechanism through which life arose on earth and it seemed to be a highly improbable event because it seemed to to, to require all of these molecules, thousands of molecules coming together in just the right way um, for to, to have a self-replicating cell, to have a system that can make copies of itself, you need thousands of molecules. It's not an easy thing for nature to produce. Um, so the idea was that where the conditions aren't right, I will say it's not easy. Um, so yeah, the idea was that there was this chance, it's called the chance assembly theory, but that there was this just collision between all the right molecules needed for life and it formed a cell. And because people thought that's how it happened, they were like, wow, that's so unlikely that it probably hasn't happened anywhere else in the universe. Like people famously said that Nobel Prize winners, like this French um, biochemist Jacques Monod was kind of famous for saying we're alone there's no meaning, there's no purpose to life, there's no significance to life, life's going to come and go, and it's this cosmic accident. Now we're finding that where you have the right conditions, um, it's, it's important to say that because, you know, life's not going to emerge on every planet. You need the chemistry that's necessary for biology. You need organic chemistry. But where you have those conditions, the new thinking is that if you have the ingredients for life, that planet will cook it up. So, um, the majority of people thought that wasn't true, but I'm sure like even in this, you know, NASA employees in like the 60s and 70s, people like Carl Sagan, they thought that life was out there. Now it's starting to be a majority view that life is probably elsewhere in the universe and there's probably also intelligent life. Of course, the question is the Fermi paradox. Why haven't we seen them? Why haven't we seen other traces? There's lots of answers to that, though. We can talk about that later if you want. But um, yeah, I, I do believe that 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 life is out there and uh, not only life, but intelligent life. I don't see just the astronomical odds against it. And I'm, you know, I'm a layman, but when you look at the size of the, you know, it's literally infinite. There's hundreds of billions of galaxies, each with hundreds of millions or hundreds of billions of stars. It's like, for you're telling me there's no microorganisms crawling around in any of that space. It's just us here on this tiny little rock. Um, so the, the, the idea behind the book, which I love is that our conscious, that, that it's not accidental, that life and consciousness is integral, that it's orderly, that it's not just a bunch of atoms crashing into each other. Right. And that our very consciousness is the thing that then propels and causes this type of evolution, uh, here and then on through the cosmos. Uh, you talked about in the book, it, it, you know, if you think about, and you just, touched on it there too, that the decisions that other intelligent life and organisms on this planet have made led 
to us being here. So how could that then be accidental if intelligent life chose to take a certain path that led to this? It, it seems like that would be. There are a lot of accidental things that do happen. There's a lot of randomness in nature. And this whole process kind of relies on that kind of balance between chaos and order. So someone could imagine things with human society going differently if there was, for example, a certain president that set off a nuclear war and set our civilization back a century. It could happen. Things like that do happen. You can actually predict that disasters will happen um, and that people will emerge that want to bring about chaos. So they usually um, justify it in some some way where they don't see themselves as doing that. But it's all part of the process, and it's basically similar to how, uh, like an AI learns. Like if you have like a um, a chess playing program, and that that program has no intelligence really at first, and you train that program by having it play lots of other players, maybe other programs, and it keeps losing, but it keeps storing patterns, and over time it becomes unbeatable. So that's what life or adaptive complexity is. That's the mechanism through which. You know, it evolves and progresses. Uh, it's basically life is a self-correcting system. So it makes errors and then it eliminates those errors because it has memory. So genetic memory was the first form of memory. Before you had brains, you had simple organisms competing. The organisms with designs that were less functional, that were less resilient, uh, died out got weeded out by the filter that is natural selection. The the better designs, the, the designs of life, the living designs that were more functional were better at doing things like, you know, finding food in the environment. That's food is our source of energy for plants and sunlight. Uh, better at competing with other organisms, better at surviving and adapting in general. Uh, those designs don't get weeded out by natural selection and they are allowed to make more copies. And so the good designs get locked into memory because they're making all of these copies and that's encoded in genetic memory. And then later life gets more complex and you get the emergence of brains and you have a new form of memory and you have a new sort of information processing system that can model the world in this kind of like virtual reality constructed um, level of detail and uh, consciousness is really interesting because one thing it allows us to do is it allows us to imagine futures um, that are different than the trajectory we're on. Like you can think like, you know, maybe it looks like we're on a bad trajectory right now. It certainly looks like, you know, we're not headed for progress. So it can be it can sound, you know, contradictory for for me to talking talking about progress being inevitable and then everything that's going on today. But it's exactly periods like this that force us to come up with solutions to the challenges that nature poses to us, that we pose to ourselves. And it's this kind of game of life having to find solutions to these existential problems that 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 motivates progress. Yeah, problems create progress is just the a principle in the book that I mentioned here. Well, and everything has any type of progress or anything we see in the world other than nature has started inside of somebody's mind, right? In their consciousness. It's like you can't find an example where that's not the case. And so without somebody having the ability to think and ponder 
and be creative, we wouldn't have any of that. And even the example you use of, you know, a madman starting nuclear war, that would still support the theory, you know, even though it wouldn't necessarily be considered progress, but it's still somebody's consciousness affecting the evolutionary path that we're on, right? Exactly, yeah. It's kind of like consciousness allows us to generate all of these possibilities in our mind. And so it's like life is exploring the space of all possible designs. And um, not all of these ideas will be good. And there will have to be a battling of people sometimes and a battling of ideas. Hopefully we can get to a place where it's more about a battling of ideas rather than people. And um, the ideas that are that serve life best in its goal of staying in existence are the, the ones that that stick around and get to make copies of themselves. So it's this not evolution is a knowledge creation process. And we've only been here for a minute. So none of it's, you know, they always use the analogy. Uh, if, if the earth was a football field, the timeline, we'd be one blade of grass. I'm sure you've heard that, but just to even put in verse, like you said before, the earth's 4 billion years old, but modern humans, couple hundred thousand years, not, none of it's guaranteed, yeah. right? There was a lot of species here a, a lot longer than we've been. Yeah, it, it's a process that uh, starts off really slow, slow to get going, but then it increases as at an exponential rate. So um, it didn't necessarily have to be our civilization. Um, you could imagine um, our species before we became intelligent enough to build technology and industry. Um you know, going down a different path and, and another species would have emerged, uh, most complex species and uh, civilization would have emerged regardless um, because uh, evolution is this knowledge creation process where my cat's here. again. So, um, yeah, where um, basically uh, you can see the biosphere as this larger intelligent system and all of the species as forming something like different cell types in the human body. So the human body is made of something like 200 different cell types. You need this distribution of cell types to have this complex functional system because those cell types carry out a division of labor. And the species that make up the biosphere do kind of the same thing. So it's important that, you know, we realize that it's it's not all about us. Humans are special in the sense that we're the most intelligent species of the process so far. We're the current pinnacle, but we're not the end point in this developmental process. And uh, we survive. We need gut bacteria, for example, to survive. So we're colonies of organisms. Well, and even if we do survive, we will ourselves inevitably become another species, right? You know, we'll. I always say like future civilizations of humans, assuming we make it that long after we merge with technology and everything, I mean, we're already putting things in our bodies, technology, why they'll look back on us the way we look at, you know, Cro-Magnon man or, or something equally or more rudimentary, right? I mean, even if we're evolving as the same species, we really won't be the same species after another thousand years. Five, imagine we live a, a million more years. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, meet Seymour, everybody. He's the other guest today. Um, so does Seymour have consciousness? Obviously, look how much he loves you. Like, what's the where's the cutoff in the animal kingdom? When I 
kill an ant on That's my a great leg? Question. Is that ant conscious? Is he? I, I always looked at what separates humans, and I do believe other life forms have consciousness and intelligence. But the thing that we have that no one else is we can we can ponder our existence. I don't know if any other species is actually pondering their existence as much as they can express love and do all of these type of things. Yeah, um, totally. So it, it's a great question. In the book, when I started writing the book, I was looking at that point, like where does consciousness arise? And as a neuroscientist, that's kind of what I've always been interested in, kind of what drew me to, to neuroscience. It's this you know, unsolved mystery of science, like how, how does consciousness emerge? And what I realized was I had to understand how life emerged, simple life. Yeah, so even simple uh, bacteria, single-celled organisms that can't be seen without a microscope, uh, some of them perform a process called chemotaxis. And in this process, they swim, uh, swim towards chemical food and away from toxins. So you already see this kind of intelligent behavior in single-celled organisms. Plants have an analogous process called heliotropism, where they grow towards the source of energy. They will track the sun in the sky. Some plants will do this. So you already see a rudimentary type of intelligence or cognition in these uh, systems and uh, to me, you know, that was like, OK, you know, we see that cognition, you know, the, what we think of as intelligence, that starts with the origin of life. And I thought that would be the place where consciousness emerged, too. But writing the book and just, you know, understanding all these other people's ideas in detail, um, I started to think that consciousness emerges with brains because brains allow for this kind of model of the world that um, basically uh, the way brains are wired together in uh, with synaptic connect connections. Yeah, uh, brains basically uh, allow for the creation of a mental model um, that uh, basically encodes the causal relationships of the world around us. So we're always interacting with the world, and when we when we interact with the world in daily life, we're 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 building memories of of those things. So we're building a model, and that model is encoded in uh, synaptic connections, which are these connections between neurons. And uh, I think you need that level of modeling to create experience. I think it's a simulation of the world, and I think. Uh, brainless organisms, or at least very simple brainless organisms, can't construct that spatio-temporal model of the world. Uh, there, there is cognition there, there is some intelligence there, but I don't believe there is subjective awareness in a bacterium. I could be wrong. Some very smart people, like biologist Michael Levin, uh, believe that you know mind probably does emerge with life. But I think consciousness, as far as having subjective experience, emerges with brains. And so you have cats that are conscious. I think they're having an experience. But then you have human-level consciousness. And I think that's another level of awareness where we are self-aware and we can reflect. And not only reflect, we can use our imagination to simulate futures 100 years down the line. We can make a plan to start a corporation or to start maybe a social movement or a political party. 
and we can kind of map out, you know, our plan for the world. And then we can do things to to manifest that reality. And, you know, when 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 some people hear that word manifest, they think like new age. But no, I'm just saying in a very physical way, you do what you need to do to create your idea, to bring your idea to life. And I think lower species don't have that ability to imagine all of these different futures. Philosophers call them counterfactuals. So we can we can uh, imagine alternative futures and we can actually carry out the work required to bring that future into existence. And that's why consciousness is special. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, everything comes from everything originates with consciousness right and that's true true free will there also you're talking that's another thing i guess that kind of separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is how much free will do they actually have they can think and react but like you said they can't manifest something from their mind into reality yeah when people talk about free will you know, a lot of people, it's just like an impossible debate to have right now. I hope that changes, but everyone's defining it differently and using different examples to demonstrate their point. But um, basically, how I see free will is that it's this higher level of agency that is allowed by the prefrontal cortex, which is really pronounced in humans. Um, this kind of intelligence is, is pretty, pretty unique to humans. Um, and what this kind of con- this level of consciousness does, and you kind of access this kind of consciousness when you have, whenever you're trying to imagine something in the future, but when you take this kind of meta perspective that um, some people call meta awareness, you kind of you know, step outside your own consciousness and try to understand yourself as part of this larger network of uh, interconnected organisms and this larger process. Otherwise known um, as shrooms, right? Yeah, that, that can do it too. Um, so yeah, th- there's Terrence McKenna, psychedelic philosopher, uh, had the stoned ape hypothesis and he thought that uh, basically, you know, our ancestors our primitive ancestors eating psychedelics could have led to this higher state of reflection that basically led to this higher consciousness that we associate with self-awareness and kind of, you know, this ability to imagine futures, project into the future, project, you can visit the past in your mind and psychology that's called mental time travel. It's episodic memory. So this higher level of intelligence allows us to reflect on our biologically programmed behavior. So we are, we are kind of like, you know, deterministic machines in the sense that there is this, you know, evolutionary program, this biological program that kind of determines how we develop. But um, of course, with the interaction with, with our environment, you know, if the, if if you think those are the only two components, then you're likely to say that we don't have free will because you're just like, oh, you're a product of your environment and your genes. But there's actually this third thing, which is associated with the prefrontal cortex. It's our uh, ability for cognitive control or executive control. And that's our ability to regulate our programmed behavior. So, for example, 
let's say someone comes up to you on the street and says something you don't like or does something you don't like, you might have like a automatic response where you want to reach out and smack that person. Um, but your rational mind, if you have a healthy functioning prefrontal cortex and not everyone does, certain things make it harder to, to exercise this behavior and, and meditation practices like that, breathing exercises, really um, kind of cultivate the, this higher level of awareness. Um, but if that kicks in, which it should, um, you basically, uh, you can override your programmed behaviors and then you're in control. When I say you, I'm basically comparing this higher awareness where you reflect on your actions and you think about your future goals, you think about your values. Uh, when you're engaging that, that mind, um, you're exercising free will as opposed to the automatic mind, which basically controls our reflexive behavior. Well, and, and don't we do that all day? And like even with less extreme examples than wanting to punch somebody in the face, it's like we're always kind of regulating our our id or our, you know, whatever biological cravings we have. I mean, if we were kind of just left to our own devices, uh, as we've seen throughout human history, not that we would even necessarily be evil toward each other, though a lot of people would. But uh, I think we would certainly act out and express ourselves much more animalistically if if there wasn't this societal structure. It's almost all day. You're kind of going, well, how is this going to affect my life is this so if I do this thing I really want to do, but it, I feel like on a small scale, you're just kind of doing maybe I'm just nuts and I want to do crazy things. But it, yeah, it's something that you have to do all the time. But, you know, so, for example, they've seen this with uh, brain imaging studies that have looked at, for example, cocaine addicts are, you know, really severe alcoholics. Um, where they have impaired executive functioning, impaired cognitive control. You can see this kind of inhibited activity in the prefrontal cortex that I say underlies this ability to regulate yourself. And um, we know that those people are kind of, they, you become a slave to your, uh, you know, kind of wired in behaviors, your pattern behaviors. So in that case, you might be in a situation where, you're trying to go score drugs and it's shady and maybe you have to go to some sketchy part of town and maybe there are cops around and you do it anyway because you have this urge to get this fix and um you know a lot of these people go to jail and you know i'm sure when they're in jail they're thinking like why did i do that or someone you know maybe they go to court and the judge is like you knew you were going to get caught. Why did you do that? And the answer is they literally lost their free will. They did not have cognitive control and they, be they became something like a zombie to their um, wired in programming. And basically that's what drugs do. They create this surge of dopamine. And what dopamine does is say, oh, this is a good behavior. Like this is a, this is a pattern that I want to keep. And so because the first time you try drugs or alcohol, whatever, you know, a lot of it, a lot of times, especially with alcohol, maybe the first time you drank, like in college, I remember for me, um, it was like an experience where I guess I was kind of shy at parties 
and then alcohol allowed me to just kind of like open up, be myself. And and so in that sense, it was helping me temporarily. And I was like, all right, let me go, you know, have fun party. And then kind of, I get to be myself and I get to, you know, you know, relax like all, you know, you know, so you have that experience and then your brain goes, this is good. Like this is, this is what I should be doing. And then it creates this circuit that creates a pattern behavior. And as you know, most people know, um, over time, it's no longer adaptive. It becomes maladaptive really quickly. Um, So in cases like that, you literally have to do things to exercise this muscle, that's the prefrontal cortex, um, to get that free will back. So meditation is a good way to do it. But I mean, that's what meditation is. You're sitting still and your brain's going in a million different directions. And you're trying to gain control over that. That's that ability to regulate yourself. And uh, so this this ability that, you know, this kind of cognitively informed uh, concept of free will, people need to understand that it's something that we do have that we can't exercise, but we can lose it and we can strengthen it. And really that's what society needs. Basically Um, we have to use free will to preserve our free will. That's the idea, right? Yeah. Loopy way to put it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Cause we're, we have to make the, the, the choice. I was thinking about cigarettes, you know, as someone who smoked most of my life, it's like you were talking about drinking. Everyone gets sick when they smoke their first cigarette or their 10th or 20, you know, I've never met anyone that it doesn't taste bad and make nauseous yet they keep doing it. And then it becomes your life. It becomes your identity. It becomes this thing you have to do every situation, every scenario without question. And you're right. You still, it's almost like you're caving to it. Like the the free will still under there because at any time and you see a lot of them do it, they say, that's enough. I'm not smoking anymore. I'm throwing this carton away and then I'm never having enough. And people do that. But they just went 20 years wishing they didn't smoke and just giving into that automatic override all that time. Yeah. Um, so those people are trying to exercise that free will. And, you know, fortunately they can for a moment. But uh, if you don't do things to strengthen those networks, the, the automatic mind is, is going to take control. All, the, all that stuff, come, come back to the book for a minute, it's like... That the free will alone to me is proof of essentially what you're theorizing to some degree, because, again, it's everything that we evolve to from here on out will be based on our choices and our intelligence and our consciousness. Is this becoming a more how long have you been kind of you start doing were you in grad school? Were you doing this type of stuff or uh, was it later on? Is this becoming more accepted in the scientific community, this idea of consciousness playing an, an actual physical role, for lack of a better word? Yeah, it's definitely becoming more accepted. I would say like in the last five years, it's become like trendy. P- people talking about, you know, this, the old worldview is kind of known as the reductionist worldview, uh, the old physical worldview, which basically said that the way we need to understand reality and the systems in reality is to break them down to their simplest components and try to understand how those components act in isolation. So first we, you know, understood that we were made of cells or atoms. Well, it, you know, depending on how you look at the history, you know, 
you could say either one of those came first, but we had this idea that we were made of these units. And then we discovered that there were those units, but then we discovered that those units were made of other units. So atoms are made of electrons, protons, and neutrons, and protons and neutrons are made of quarks. And then you can keep going lower till you get to fields and strings, and then it's not clear you're even talking about anything physical anymore. I mean, it's physical, but in what sense? It's not material. So it doesn't explain anything about consciousness. It explains, you know, we have, we've built these particle accelerators that, you know, show us lots of interesting things about how, you know, the most fundamental elements of nature uh, interact and, you know, under these forces, these, these four different forces, but it doesn't tell us anything about consciousness. You're right about that. So now there's this kind of trend of, you know, there's this term emergence, which just means when you have a bunch of things and they come together and they form this new system like molecules coming together, you know, a chemical system organizing itself to make a, a cell, to make a biological system, you get something new. Life behaves differently than the inanimate world. Um, inanimate things like rocks don't have any goals. They don't move in any goal-directed way. You can predict their uh, paths of movement using Newtonian mechanics. Pretty simple equations can tell you uh, if you throw a ball, how far it's going to go. But if you throw a bird, you can't predict that using classical mechanics. So you have to start talking about the information in systems. You have to start understanding biology really as this informational science. And you start ha ha having to understand consciousness as something like a, a computer simulation. And then you can start to sort of predict life, not not perfectly, but you can you basically see, I mentioned that term attractors at the beginning, you can see these stable states that systems move toward because they have to, to stay in existence, basically. And basically life evolves, you know, over these slow processes. We have evolution through natural selection and you have genomes are evolving, but you have human learning during your lifetime too. So that's a sort of evolution, a sort of cognitive development or cognitive uh, evolution. And all of this stuff is important and as as the systems that organize themselves in nature become more complex, they have more computational power and they have more freedom. So free will is definitely a part of the story. It, it's going to emerge on any planet where you have intelligence, uh, basically because the most intelligent species will have this ability to look into the future. And it's that ability that takes life off the planet. Essentially, life intelligent life as it progresses will inevitably realize that for life to continue to exist um, it has to get off the planet because its star is going to die someday so ours will die in like i think it's four billion years um and for life to continue we have to get off the planet and so i don't think you know people like elon musk like spacex or like nasa I don't think it's anything that, you know, we discovered like kind of randomly like, oh, let's or, or, or something that we deserve credit for even like let's go to space. I think it's a biological imperative that any biosphere, you know, will will produce these intelligent agents that have these aspirations because life is ultimately trying to survive and long term survival is ha has to involve life spreading because it will exhaust all of its energy resources and it basically has to find energy from elsewhere. And that imperative is what fuels this 
process of progress. Yeah, why would why would we stay? Would be the weirder question because if you just look at you know microcosm of it here, no species do that. It would be like if we just remained in those first few colonies and nobody wanted to explore out west and expand to all the other. I mean, that's just within our country, but obviously throughout civilization throughout the world. That's the thing. People walk around all day, not in wonderment of the main thing we're a part of, which is this universe. It always blows my mind. I go like, we're, we're sitting on this rock. We're part of this thing and nobody cares. Nobody understands what it is, how it got here, what's out there. They just go, hey, I'm, I'm below the stratosphere. I'm only going to focus on what's right here. And it's like, we're part of something that we have no idea what it is. And I guess I always say you can't walk around and all the time you wouldn't get a lot done. I feel like most people don't ever even stop to think about it. Stoners do. Stoners do. Yeah. Well, that, there you go. <laughs> so maybe yeah. everybody needs to smoke just a little bit of weed. That's something Joe Rogan used to always speaking of. Was it just a complete speaking of consciousness manifesting into strange reality? Was that just a total mind fuck going on Joe Rogan show? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I had seen him interviewing scientists and kind of coming to this story himself that you know where i think the way he put it was like we're like kind of like these monkeys and we're just like acting out this process and we don't even really realize that what we're doing is part of this larger process and i was like he gets it and it was funny because the person he wasn't he was talking to was you know smart scientist someone like i respected and you know i can't remember who it was it might have been roger penrose it might have been sean carroll but yeah, basically, um, they didn't really respond to it. And I was like, man, he was on to something profound right there. Um, and, and, you know, you're saying, you know, why don't most people think about it? I think most people, or at least science minded people who have like a general understanding of science, they think that there is no larger process. They don't think life is part of it. They think life is this accidental offshoot. And then whatever's going on in this planet is something quirky and not baked into the process itself and not leading to anything larger. And I think once people start to realize that it's going to be, it's going to be like a paradigm shift, uh, of like more significance than like the Newtonian and Darwinian revolutions. Those were all really important steps towards this, but we're starting to realize that we're part of this process and that this process of progress is, you know, happens at an exponential rate. So we're at the part where it starts to become explosive. And that's because we're starting to merge with our technology. Yeah. So when when I pitched Joe, I um, you know, I I wrote it in a way that I thought would resonate with him based on the fact that he's been interested in this. And yeah, I think, you know, I think they had a spot open up, probably somebody dropped out um because they were like yeah, we can do it, but you have to be here on Tuesday. Like you have to be here in like two days. And the thing was like, I had spent so much time writing the book and it was like about to come out, but I had planned all of the interviews around the release date. So like, but when I pitched Rogan, I pitched it, you know, like a, a couple months or, or I guess one month before the release date. And since he needed me right away, it was like I didn't get any practice. It was like straight straight to Rogan as the first interview. It was like skipping the playoffs and going to the championship. So, yeah, that that was crazy. But it, it was fun. And, um, you know, in a way, I, I saw how it could make sense. I, you know, I was telling certain people like, oh, I'm going to get on. I'm going to get on that show. Um, 
So yep. yeah, it was awesome. I'd like to go back and talk more about like practical stuff, like kind of like what's going on, what we need to do right now to sort of save our civilization, because uh, it was mostly focused on kind of like the philosophical, you know, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, but all this stuff actually creates this imperative for like what we need to do as a, as a society right now. What do you, I mean, and by the way, the stoners do get it. It's that we were talking about shrooms before meditation, something I've been trying to get into for the first time in my life. People that have been in those states of mind, there is an, an ineffable feeling associated with being connected to the universe via your consciousness. And you can never describe that to anybody, but in that moment, it's like I always say, it's like a dream. You wake up from the dream and you, you, you can't quite describe it, but you know the feeling. No, I know it's connected somehow, but then you can't. But what do we need to do as a civilization, in your opinion? And and, and what are we going to be seeing? You know, this theory is based on talking about, you know, the universe kind of waking up through us. Um, and the whole book is kind of like an extrapolation, like of the of the of the Carl Sagan quote that you talk about. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. Right. Yep. That's it. So, you know, to that regard, uh, what do we then what do we then need to do to manifest our survival? Yeah, that's um, that's the question we should all care about. Um, and I have a lot of answers. I'll give you a few today. Um, we need to understand. So so by taking this perspective that there's this cosmic evolutionary process that includes life and that it, it involves these these units or systems coming together and making these larger systems. And that's not only how you get organisms, it's how you get societies and it's how you get human civilization as a whole. Um, it's one continuous evolutionary process and our technology fits into that picture as well. So a beaver creating a dam, actually beavers do this instinctually. So they don't have to learn it from their parents. If you, take a beaver like a, a baby that hasn't you know seen any other beavers it will instinctually start to construct a dam so richard dawkins evolutionary biologist uh, put forth this idea called the extended phenotype and just to say what that means it's basically saying that like so we have genes you have a genotype and a phenotype and genotype is just your genes it's just this code this biological code and the phenotype is what the code constructs so blue eyes would be a phenotype and there would be some gene corresponding to the blue eyes well this is basically saying that the that the dam that the beaver builds is a phenotype too it's part of its body basically it's an extension of its body because it builds this thing instinctually and that thing becomes part of its you know the environment and the and the organism kind of merge and so tools are an extension of our body as well. So when we created the first hammer, you know, it was allowing us to do things like break open nuts and get food, get energy and, and, and do things that we couldn't do before. Um, our phones are extensions, uh, not just of our body, but of our mind. So there's the extended mind hypothesis. So we have all this additional memory in our palm. And if we want to solve problems, like if our car breaks down on the side of the road, let's say uh, you get a flat tire, we can look up on YouTube how to change a a tire and suddenly you have this knowledge to do what you need to do uh i mean and it's only going to get crazier especially if like the education that like metaverse type environments will allow like when people can you know 
you're not just hearing facts about ancient Greece from a teacher, but you actually get to be immersed like in those worlds. So we're part of this process and it's an evolutionary process and it's an error correcting process, self-correcting. So any society, if it's to be resilient in the face of a chaotic world, it needs to be self-correcting or adaptive. And there are some governments, some you know belief systems or worldviews that are self-correcting and they're ones that aren't. Uh, most of them aren't or most of them have, you know, someone could say that Christianity has kind of adapted and, and corrected itself because, you know, it doesn't teach every little story and idea equally. It's kind of found the ones that are most useful for people. Yeah. And then that that's what's focused on. So for any system to survive any worldview, uh, it has to be adaptive to some extent. You know, at this stage of evolution, most people haven't really taken that seriously as as far as building a worldview around it. So the idea of democracy of like, you know, you have this ability for everybody to vote and make change. That's adaptive because you change the system and, and the system changes when culture changes. But these systems that kind of don't allow for criticism or new ideas like Russia's system and China's systems. China has a social credit system now. You're rem sorry to cut. You're removing the free will that we were talking about before. I hadn't thought about it in that sense. But if you're living in North yeah. Korea, how much free will do you really have over there? You're, you're actually you're absolutely removing the free will. And that's really interesting and scary way to put it. Yeah, they, they become these people who follow this belief system blindly. And they're kind of like automatons. Um, and, you know, China has... Uh, a much better economy and, you know, probably better conditions for living. Certainly, you know, that you could say for, for most people there. But the social credit system makes it such that, you know, they, they, they try to pitch it as like, okay, if you litter, this camera will catch you and it has facial recognition software and you'll get some points off your thing. Or if you you know, you're doing something else bad that no one else in society wants you to do. It'll punish you. And, you know, that's why people went for it. I'm not sure how much chance, you know, freedom they had in that situation to go for it. But I mean, uh, as, as a whole, the society accepted it. But really what the social credit system allows them to do is anyone speaking out like any sort of like blogger, any activist, they make their life hell. They'll imprison you. You know, if you speak out against yeah. these practices, they'll they'll put you in a hole for a decade. Yeah. And some of these countries will kill you. So you have to have a society that's open to ideas. You have to have like a free and open society. So that's one thing that we should push for. And in America, we kind of have that, but we have lots of problems, too. And we're not really adaptive. We're not like changing policy at the rate we should when it's not working well. For example, you know, I think there's awareness building that there's a problem with with capitalism in the in the way we have it. But, you know, some people are just trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, you know, capitalism sucks. Let's try communism. And then you have similar problems because then everything is controlled by the state, uh, by the nation state not the individual state, of course. And that's similarly, you know, a, a model where the people at the top can control everybody else. 
So I think capitalism is good. Capitalism is a mechanism of evolution because you have corporations competing. And when you have competition, drives down prices. There's a lot of important things to have competition. But the problem with our system is that the people who have uh, benefited from capitalism and have all this capital, have all this money, can then influence the laws in their favor. And so they're like artificially influencing this evolutionary process and it's hurting everyone else because it leads to this extreme social and economic uh, inequality. So, I mean, that's something we have to do immediately is get money out of politics. I was just going to say money out of politics. As you said it, I don't I don't see why anyone on any side uh, likes the idea of people being able to buy you know, it, I mean, it just flies in the face of the entire system. We said it's the exact opposite of why we even set up this system in the first place and having people represent us in government. All these people should be completely um, loyal to their constituents. It's, it's nothing, you know, some donors coming in with X amount. Like you said, the way our system is set up, it's so much resistance. You always hear about, you know, if, if only a benevolent dictator is an old term, because that really would expedite process a hundredfold because it is always this game of give us this little inch with this thing and then we'll give you this inch with this thing. And, you know, you're always trying to, whereas if you really just had a true pragmatist, you know, opens it at the top and just said, go, just go, go, go. And obviously that's not, you know, freedom and democracy either, but from an idealistic standpoint, you could see how things could progress so much faster. I think China probably tries to, Uh, sell the idea of like a benevolent dictator. But the problem is um, human nature, part of it, you do want to conserve power and help your kin. And um, that kind of comes out in this process. And that's a problem. So whatever it needs to be, let's say you have someone you do need, you do need like, you know, key figures who, who uh, are good at speaking and are good at like enacting change and like, you know, have our confidence as a nation you know, that they'll do the best things. Um, they, th- this idea of a self-correcting system and, and being adaptable, that has to be written into the ideology. And if that's written into the ideology, then we'll be okay. Um, it's great that we have term limits that was kind of part of this. I mean, just this basic idea that you don't want anyone having too much power, but what term limits also allow, it allows for ideological change. So yeah, there needs to be like this social movement where, you know, everybody just gains this sort of awareness that the system is broken and that the people on the right, you said both sides, like, you know, neither side should want this. But the problem is, is that both sides, talking about politicians, they're benefiting from this directly. And then they're very clever at, you know, they they basically create division because for them to keep their way of doing things, let's say, you know, I I'm, I don't want to pick on the right. Uh, there's, I, well, I do, I want to pick on both the right and left. So, but this, I'll just mention about the right. So just um, them convincing people that like, you know, liberals are doing something bad, like that, that it's okay to have these companies that, you know, oil companies or whatever, like profiting, like 
but they've convinced themselves that the people trying to stop that are these liberals with this like globalist agenda that want to whatever, however they sell it nefariously, that works and it divides. So both sides are dividing us and they're saying like what they have to say to stay in power. And so there really needs to be this new sense of awareness that the system needs to be adaptive and self-correcting and it needs to have, you know, all of these, uh, this freedom of, of new ideas. Um, and so there needs to be like a movement that kind of unites the right and left, something like the kind of populist movement we were seeing. It's funny yeah. because that people, people were sold on Trump's uh, agenda of like getting money out of politics and draining the swamp. But I mean, the people support, supporting Bernie Sanders on the far left they were attracted to a similar message um, of, of getting money out of politics. So I really saw this movement brewing where people wanted to change corruption in Washington. But ultimately, it was the same thing, maybe even worse with Trump. People want real. They want authentic. They should call it the human movement. Uh, I, the biggest problem is that we made everything political and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. There, there are things people all agree upon from a human standpoint. There is no openness. There is everything's tribal. Everything's my way is right. Your way is wrong. Uh, I knew the minute I won, you know, bets with people. The minute Trump decided to actually run, I said, he's going to win. And everyone thought I was insane. And I said, you don't Same understand. Here. I said, my whole life, people have been craving somebody to get up there and say, this is all bullshit, Right. Now, whether he, you know, fulfilled what he wanted to or not, that's a whole nother. But just to even get up there and not have the political rehearsed cadence, right? And to say, I'm not part of this machine. It's all nonsense. And I'm looking out for like, that's my whole life. I always said, if someone comes along and just kind of gets up there and talks like a regular guy and goes, this yeah, whole system is totally. bullshit, people are going to love it. And they love Bernie for the same reason. And the, the yep. political agendas were so far apart, but they were both based on the idea of, hey, it's we the people. It's not the I'm, I'm very libertarian minded in nature. I don't think the federal government should be a part of any of this stuff. I don't think half of these conversations should be political conversations. They're, you know, humanistic conversations. And that this idea that we then apply everything to Republican or Democrat, just these two arbitrary parties. We should have 50 parties, no parties. Yeah. Should have people just going in there to represent their constituents. Don't put a big R next to his name or a D where now he's got to be beholden to this random yeah. other group of people. Let him be a real person. Let him say, when I see these votes in Congress, 240 something, you know, unanimous, I go, how do all these people, do they really all agree? Or they just have to do that. They have to toe the line. And then when you're the one guy who doesn't, Everyone attacks you. That's like uh, yeah. the antithesis of, of how we should be. And I don't see how we expedite process. But it's interesting that you're incorporating all the because it does come down to we're still within the construct of society and politics. Right. These are complex adaptive systems. A society is a super organism and it has to be able to evolve. And if you have if you don't have an ideology that allows for that then it won't be optimal. On the positive side, 
Sorry, what, what what would you end up with there? Just a bunch of hippies in a field or pure chaos? So I, I see the sides diverging so much that there's a bunch of people in the middle. And I won't even say in the middle because that implies that the that the right idea is like somewhere in between the right and the left. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. The 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 good ideas that, you know, kind of bring about this radical change that we need can be anywhere. It might not fall along that spectrum. I think people who are just dead in the center are almost just as bad for progress as the people that are on the extremes because nothing's going to change if you're dead center. And really, that's the reason we have these extremes, because the people who are extreme are basically seeing that problem. They're like, we got to do something like we got to be activists. So I see it diverging and, you know, both sides becoming so tribal and ideological that there's a bunch of people, people like you and me that are like, you know, I I don't relate to that. I don't I don't think that's a good you know way to go. So I think something new is emerging and it it doesn't have to be like um, this like total like hippie utopian thing. It can be basically a political ideology based on system science. So complex adaptive systems. So so for a system to be more complex, complexity is really a feature of a couple things. So a system's more complex if it has more parts and more connections between those parts. And also there should be a diversity among the parts that there should be a lot of, you know, for example, with um, the chemistry needed to make uh, life like a living cell, you, you can't get life with just all carbon atoms or all hydrogen or carbon and hydrogen. You need this spectrum of molecules interacting. You need about like seven or eight molecules to get like even very simple organic chemistry. I um, in the human body, as I mentioned, you have 200 different cell types working together, some very simple, some very complex. Neurons are super complex. Red blood cells are very, fairly simple. Um, and then you have this biosphere where you have these ecosystems of all these different species. So you need diversity. So just based on those principles, you want to connect people with technology that allows information exchange. So, you know, all technologies have can be used for good or bad, but as far as how it's connecting us, internet and social media is good. Blockchain technology, so cryptocurrency is allowing people to be connected and bypass central banks and do all these interesting things with like NFTs. There's a lot of hate from the left towards crypto uh, now because it was something trendy. I think that's really bad too. It could be a very powerful tool for all kinds of things, all kind like all new kinds of economies that are, are really interesting. And, you know, maybe you can, if you want to have me back, I can talk all about, you know, specific things. But this, this, this two concept of integration being important and diversity among the parts being important. So we want a diversity of cultures and ideas because we want to com- we want to increase like that exploration of the design space. And, um, you know, not all these ideas are going to be good, but uh, you need a diversity of ideas so those ideas can kind of battle it out. But you can start to create something like um, something like a political ideology based on evolutionary 
principles and and cybernetics, which is the science of like feedback. Um, societies and organisms are systems that are self-maintaining. So they're always using positive and negative feedback to kind of stay at this like happy equilibrium, this happy, like stable state. You need, you know, the system to be self-correcting. So you do need a way for like ideology to change, whether that's like term limits or, you know, having just being open to like other parties. It's, it's really bad, as you said, just having these two parties. You can start to build a systems-based worldview that just tells us how to be most resilient and adaptable. And uh, I have a substack that I've started and you know, I have some people helping me out. There's only two posts. So there's a lot of content that I'm about to upload in the next couple months there and on my YouTube channel. Both of them are called Road to Omega. An Omega point is this philosophical idea that the biosphere is kind of going towards the state of like maximum complexity or optimal complexity and maybe the global brain that connects humans. Maybe there's something like a consciousness that's going to emerge once we become super integrated. The good thing about becoming integrated is let's say there's some problem like the problem with Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine got invaded by Russia and we wanted to send aid to Ukrainians whose homes were being bombed and the internet allowed us to do that. So you could imagine a future where there's all these extra connections and it's mostly through the internet, but, but basically we're connected and we can become more connected such that when there are problems in certain places, there can be a global response that fixes that problem. And we can see that like getting better over time. I mean, like 20 years ago, if the Ukraine thing happened, it might be something on the news, but a lot of people just don't watch news. Um, but now everybody's on social media. So like everything is like on everybody's radar. There's good and bad to that, but part of it's really good. And yeah, just these two concepts of integration and diversity um, can can inform us on how to like change our systems to start being most uh, adaptable and resilient. You're using the word open a lot. It's a word I think about a lot, too, is being open, you know, from just a personal level, you know, when it comes to we're talking about consciousness and feeling and emotion and all that. But as a species, as humanity, the tribalism is so antithetical to the openness and the progress. You're talking about the Internet. I feel like people are kind of preying upon that. They want the division. Anything you say now in any direction they go, you're a right-wing extremist. You're a communist leftist extremist. It's like, I'm just a regular guy. I mean, I stand by the, the assertion that most people are not the noisy internet. You know, that if you went door to door in this country and remove maybe a couple hot button issues, there's always the couple hot button issues that they want to drill into your head all day. You take those away, 80, 90% of people in this country if you really pin them down, kind of agree on everything, but they, they don't allow themselves to. They go, well, that guy, he's deaf. You know, I can't agree with him. You're talking about uh, people in the middle not being that, you know, geared toward progress either because they can't really make a decision in either way. I don't people talk about ambivalence as being like indecisive. I think a lot of people have very strong opinions in both directions. And, you know, I know that's how I am personally. People would think I'm extreme right in a lot of 
because as a libertarian especially, but I go, hey, let's legalize every vice too, right? Legalize every, decriminalize everything. No one belongs in prison for having sex with a prostitute or for snorting some substance. That's insane. We're going to lock this guy in a box. So they go, well, you're a crazy liberal for saying that. But no, I'm just, somebody has a strong opinions in a lot of directions, but the forum for people being able to express themselves like that, they're becoming scared. They're gonna, I'm going to get attacked by my people, by my side, if I don't fall in line on every issue. I feel like that's what we have yeah. to get away from is where people can feel free to say, hey, I agree with you guys on these things, but I really don't on this other thing. You know, we don't all have to be R's or D's or just go along with this club. It's, um, and yeah, term limits, ridiculous. Congress really has more to do yeah. with law than anything, certainly more than the president. This idea that people are campaigning every couple of years is crazy. Get them out of there, have them do a great job and then let the next guy come out. Yeah. Or limit campaign funds to some like, you know, hundred dollars or something. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it would be evidence that we're, you know, doing something new. So if, if you take this idea that this kind of like systems philosophy, uh, just, you know, thinking about, you know, the dynamics of systems, how they evolve, what makes them most resilient. If you think that can provide something like an ideology, then basically you have this, uh, new perspective, um, where, um, it's like if someone is, 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 going off those principles, then their ideas aren't going to be always on the right or the left. You will see what you're talking about, where maybe they're left on certain things, but then they have a position that's seen as right. And then they might have a position that's seen as like libertarian and then something else. That would be a good sign because if everything is predictable and like, and that's how it is today. Like every politician, you can almost bet they're never going to go against the grain. Like they're going to fall along those lines. And they're in the news all the time because of it. Yeah. Then the extremists try to destroy their careers for doing that. Um, it's also a sign of not having free will. If someone is behaving completely predictably, then they're basically, you know, doing what's expected and like programmed. It's, you're making, sorry, but you're making such a great point because you're right. If you said to me, we're, we're bringing this bill forth in the house next week, I could tell you right now the exact people are going to vote and how they're going to vote. And I could tell you the two guys who are going to go against it. And it's like, I shouldn't know that. Yeah. You shouldn't know that. Yeah, exactly. And you should see all kinds of variety all over the place of people saying yeah. I like this and I like that and I don't care that you know you don't see any of that yeah and that's really bad it 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 means that you know there's not this diversity of ideas so right there you again see how these two concepts of integration and diversity among the parts uh, the component parts of a system kind of inform that yeah we we shouldn't be seeing just such predictable shrink the government down anyway what have they ever if you if you actually look at all the progress throughout human history, it's come from private sector. It's come from creative, motivated, and very little of true progress, or whether it be technological, or has actually come from the government. Our system, when we created it, was this revolutionary, literally a revolutionary idea, and it and we've maintained it. But that's the idea is to maintain it. Yeah, I guess you know they weren't a lot of them probably weren't politician career politicians when they 
created it. So they're not even those people. Yeah, it would be to me, it's kind of like logical. Like, why would you expect these people that go into government? And some of them are smart people and they're capable. Some of them, not all of them. I definitely don't think they're our best and brightest overall. Um, yeah. Why would you expect them to come up with like world changing ideas? Um, those ideas I mean, can come from anybody. But yeah, they wouldn't come specifically from politicians only. So us looking to this small group of people uh, to like change the world. No, that's like uh, it's important to to say, because, I mean, there's such anger against capitalism and the current system, which is totally understandable. But that, you know, there it is becoming trendy among the you know far left to, you know, think, you know, going towards communism is a good idea. And um, even some more like, you know, stricter, I guess, more extreme forms of like, you know, I'm not talking about European socialism. Um, and that's not good either, because that's not that, the way forward. Well, and we can see, you know, we can always learn from history. And uh, yeah, other than, you know, maybe Denmark and Sweden and some of those places that are doing their own thing on a on a smaller scale. Yeah, wealth redistribution on a large... It's like, hey, look, it's been tried a lot of times. The stuff you're talking about, a lot of people tried it. Like you said, the power. You're giving all the power to this centralized government. You trust them. You think that it's like nobody nobody should have that kind of power. If People say there's a disparity with capitalism, and it's like your solution then is to give all this to a centralized government and think that they're going to do the right things and have your well-being in mind and, and that all that money's going to get to the right, but they're not just going to all line their pockets the way they've always done. Um, yeah, I've, that's I've, another, that's another principle that comes from this systems view that I mentioned. You want a healthy distribution of resources. So if all of the power and power is a resource, if all the power is um, concentrated in like, the wealthy, like we see this problem with like, you know, billionaires having like, you know, this larger portion of wealth than they've ever had. Or if you see all this power concentrated in government, neither is good because power should be distributed. Resources in general should be distributed across the system. If the if the U.S., if the, if the nation really is something like a social organism, if you buy this idea that these or organisms exist at these different levels, they're all complex adaptive systems. Then having all of the resources in like one place would be like having a body where blood isn't flowing to the, you know, limbs. And if you have, you know, any part of your body cut off from resources, it's going to fester and then it's going to affect the whole body like you, you will die eventually. So there needs to be a healthy distribution of resources. I don't think it needs to be like a government mandated distribution, like redistribution of resources like communism, I think we can redistribute resources by kind of evolving capitalism into something that allows everyone to, for example, raise money. Right now, if you want to raise money for business, you have to like know how to do that. You probably have to have a degree. Uh, you have to probably know some venture capitalists. You probably have to know how, you know, you have to know how that system works. But um, there are new methods thanks to like blockchain systems uh, in particular, that could potentially allow regular people to raise capital easily and for regular people to become invest investors in that project through, 
for example, like issuing like a token. Like Bitcoin's pretty interesting because there's no company, there's no corporation behind Bitcoin. It's an open source platform of developers and people join that and then, you know, Ethereum's the same way. And then the creators are given a certain amount of Ethereum. And if the platform becomes more popular, then that uh, uh, token increases in value. So um, it's like a self-organized system. It's it's a system that, that doesn't have this strict corporate identity. It's kind of fluid and adaptable. And we need to be transitioning towards those kinds of systems. People have been, by the way, I know I've kept you over here. I'll, I'll wrap you up in a second. It's but been, It's been fun. Good. Thank you. Likewise. I, I think uh, the key to a lot of it is the decentralization. Don't they even talk about with the internet? They've been trying to create for years a decentralized internet. It is. I, the more we've talked, it feels like the key to all this stuff is kind of the openness. It, the opposite of the rigidness. That stuff all, we use the extreme of like Iran and North Korea, where it's, you know, extreme rigidity. And we're certainly doing a lot better than them. But when you really sit there and think about it, all of those limitations that are put on us through government, through politics, through society, that's re it's really preventing. Any, any to me, it feels like any centralization, like you said, of power anywhere is going to prevent and not to mention with all the technology, we're only going to see more and more of that as as there is less workforce required, right? As resources become less finite. I mean, at some point in human civilization, we probably are heading more back to being the hippies in the field, right? Because <laughs> where do you really go? I mean, it'll have to come back to communal living in a way, won't it? Um, I'm not sure about that, but I think decentralization is the right way to go because you're just decentralizing resources. But how I see it is sort of this, maybe you call it hyper capitalism, but this situation where like anybody can, if they have a good idea, you can put this idea online, you can have a proposal online. Anybody can raise money by creating, for example, an NFT. Let's say you're a 16 year old rapper from like a low income community and you and you you've masterminded this album. You have it like all planned and maybe have the songs recorded like rough recordings that you could afford. Um, and then you put it online and then you create a business proposal. You can have the people in the community purchase a token, dedicate, uh, donate. Um, well, it's not really donate. It's investing at this point. Um, investing a small amount of money and that person doesn't have to go with like a major label, some big corporate entity, they can do it themselves. And then the people who invested, if that person is successful, the token is connected to their success and then everybody becomes investors. So what NFTs can do is allow, allow a new type of crowdfunding, which opens up the ability to raise capital and to invest to everybody where right now it's like only a small part of society like knows how to like get on exchanges. And really there's a lot of limits to what you can do that like there's laws that like where you can't even like trade the way, you know, these massive fir firms trade systems completely rigged. And that was kind of what that whole GameStop thing was about a couple of years ago. But yeah, so we need to be looking at new radical new ideas that decentralize resources 
things like crypto economics and and the left has to get on board with that or else it's going to pass them by and i mean you, you know all these technologies can be used for good or bad and and blockchain can definitely be like a terrible source of like pri- privacy violation you can use blockchain systems to basically record you know everything that everyone's doing at every time if like you know, uh, a government that wants to keep control starts using these systems. But so it's kind of our responsibility right now to look at this new technology and see how we can create this more decentralized future. Yeah, I think. And the right is wary of you touched on there, the government creating the digitalized currency and them controlling it. It's like both sides are wary of it uh, for different reasons. You could if you held a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what an NFT is. And uh, I think I think that is the key. Like you said, it's it's the access and it's the information that is the great equalizer. You know, if you really want true equality of opportunity, people, I, I was thinking about um, uh, Kevin Hart, who I've watched on Rogan a couple of times and other stuff. He, he talks, you know, he goes to uh, impoverished neighborhoods, um, underprivileged, but his whole point in going there, he says, well, is, I want to give people just information. It's all I want to give them is information. That's the most valuable thing. And you're talking about NFTs, but just this is how you open up a bank account. This is how you do it. Because, you know, to us, some of that stuff seems simple. You know, I think of NFT. I have no idea what an NFT is, but I go having a bank account or leasing a car or a mortgage or something. Well, everyone knows how. But then, no, they don't. Half the country doesn't know how to even do that stuff. Yeah. Education, information exchange, super important. Yeah, the access and the information. If everyone has that, then at least you're kind of starting from a point where we're all we're all playing with the same toys, right? Yeah. So uh, that's a, that's one major goal. Yeah, that that's that interconnection. I mean, and that's what all of these technologies are allowing us to do is just exchange information like with less friction. Absolutely, I, and I think that is, uh, like you said, where we're heading. If we're if we're to su- survive as a species. That's where we got to go. It's the openness. We, we can't be so rigid in our thought and bringing that back to the book. We kind of have to open up our minds. The idea that our consciousness is everything. The way we perceive the world is our reality. You know, perception is reality. I could just as easily totally. see you as a bunch of atoms crashing into each other if I viewed things on a subatomic level. But because this is our perception, right, that in and of itself becomes our reality. We manifest yes. society the way we see it and dream it in, in our heads. Totally. Well said. I've kept you long. This is a great combo. I do have to have you come back because I think we can talk about a lot more uh, interesting topics. I think people are really going to love this. Well, yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Um, I guess we kind of set the kind of philosophical foundation and maybe next time we can talk about more uh, solving actual practical problems. Yes, I would love that. Anytime. You're always welcome. Thank you. And uh, people, go out, get the book, Romance of Reality, How the Universe Organizes Itself to Create Life, Consciousness, and Cosmic Complexity. uh, Yeah, and if you could follow the Road to Omega YouTube channel and Substack, there's going to be a lot of content soon. Yeah, I was just going to say, tell tell the people where to find you on social and all that. And uh, Twitter, um, Twitter's kind of where I do like professional stuff, but uh, I have an Instagram account that I want to start, um, you know, be like, I don't know if many people are using Instagram to talk about this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, just my name at Bobby Azarian at both those places. You can follow me. Awesome. Check them out. Bobby Azarian. And, uh, and that's it, y'all. Thank you so much for coming on. That was really 
very enlightening, very interesting, and it's going to give me a lot to think about. Awesome. Likewise. Thank you. And uh, yeah, that was a real treat. I hope everybody enjoyed the convo. And I will be back next week with some more great guests. And uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. I will see you soon.